As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We can now head over to London to catch up with Francine Lacroix and the Credit Suisse CEO. Thank you so much, John. We are delighted to be joined by, of course, Ulrich Kerner, the Credit Suisse Chief Executive Officer. Thank you for joining us. It's a difficult day, another difficult day for Credit Suisse. What can you tell us about the outflows in the wake of SVB? So SVB, as you know, is a very recent um, thing which happened over weekend and yesterday. So far, it's pretty calm. Um, we even saw material good inflows yesterday still. Um, also, you know, I had a client meeting which was very positive on that one. So, so far it's calm, but I think it's early yeah. days to, to look at the but, uh, Calm, are you suggesting that you could also actually get inflows? So we as got inflows change. yesterday, which is a positive sign, I would say. Um, and, you know, for us, and, and that is maybe a little bit, if I may say so, Francine, in comparison to SVB, it's a very different situation, you know. We are GSIP, as you know. We are following mm-hmm. materially different and higher standards when it comes to capital funding, liquidity, and so on. And that's why we said, you know, we gave, I think in this situation okay. is important, we gave LCR liquidity uh, capital ratio of like 140-40 at, mm-hmm. at the end of Q4, which is a strong ratio, which has improved as we went through this quarter to like 150 on average and spot being even higher on that yeah. one. So. But out, so outflows have not reversed, but they've actually lowered. As when I, are they reversing? Look, they have significantly moderated, as I put it. We gave an update on February 9 in terms of where we are on deposits and net new assets and so on. We will give next update with the first quarter result. But it is also very clear, you know, if and we talked about that, what has happened in, in like fourth quarter, you know, um, we are fully focused on it, turn it around, but that takes longer than like just two months. It, it, but then you, do, you have this material weakness today. What happened there? there? There's concern that actually almost every day there's some kind of bad news and you have your share price at a record low. Like that can't be a comfortable position. No, but we, we published our annual report today. So you have seen the financial result. I think that's the key message. The financial result is unchanged for 2022 no. and previous years. We delayed the report, as you have seen, a couple of days to appropriately deal with, you know, questions the SEC had, and we did. Yeah. Uh, and that is part of a longer ongoing dialogue. 
and we acknowledge that we have a material weakness in the financial in the financial reporting control, which we are addressing and remediating forcefully. So. How are you addressing that? So is that an auditor problem? You had PwC on the case. Is it their fault? No, it's absolutely not their fault. Uh, that is obviously, you know, that goes hand in hand as, as you work together with your auditor. But it's a collective finding and we are addressing it. We have remediation plan and we are addressing it. So you, you have a, an anchor investor that put 1.5 million in the bank. Now their share value has gone down by one third. Will they have to inject more? What kind of conversations are you having with them? No, look, nobody is pleased about the share price development, you know, but we manage what we can manage. And this is the execution of our plan. That's the right strategy. It's the right plan. We are executing at pace and even ahead of the plan. And I think our shareholders see that as well. That's an unpleasant situation in share price, but I can't manage share price. I can manage no. the execution and I do. So you don't think you're getting pressure from shareholders? You're not getting pressure from, you know, certain big shareholders to do more and actually to have all options on the table? No, as I said, they are obviously, they're obviously not pleased with the development. I'm not pleased with the development the first hand, obviously, but, you know, we are executing. And once we are executing step by step, we show the market, and this is exactly why we said it's a three years process. And, and we are executing. And that is, you know, the market will acknowledge that and the share price will, will follow. Do you think all options should be on the table? What about breaking up the bank? If you look, and I understand your frustration with the share price and saying, look, you're just executing. But when you look at the share price, 97% below that 2007 high. Like, how do you regain from that. No, but that you can, can't compare, as you know. But, you know, as, a, as I said, it's a right strategy. I'm fully, com fully convinced of the strategy. We are executing at Paris. We have the right team. And, you know, that's why we said in October it needs radical change. You know, the bank needs to be changed. And we said it's a three-year transformation. And you can't come after two, two months and say, look, why is not everything done? But radical change could be splitting off the bank. Is it something that you're, you're evaluating? No, look, the new Credit Suisse is focused on the core strengths of the bank. This is wealth management, the Swiss bank business, asset management, the, what we put the market, i.e. the trading and sales business. That makes entirely sense. Entirely different risk profile. Will be very profitable and will reward shareholders. And I think the shareholders understand that. When will you be able to say, like, the worst is really behind us? But we said it's three years transformation. We said we are going to make a loss, unfortunately, this year because, you know, and this is something which you need to understand. A lot of the restructuring costs, you know, yeah. baked into the transformation are coming in 2023 before we see a lot of benefits. Um, out of that transformation. And that is something which happens. That's why we said it takes three years. Three years is a long time, Ulrich. I mean, a a lot of the share, but a lot of the shareholders will start asking questions. I mean, have you asked them for more money to make it faster? No, three years, our, especially in this banking world, anything could happen. No, but, you know, as I said, our LCR ratio is strong and very strong and has, has, has getting stronger as we speak. Our capital ratio is very strong at 14.1% as we gave it to Q4, so we have everything we need to go through the transformation miles. Are, are you expecting you know, the first quarter to be good enough to keep shareholders off your back? The first quarter is, is, as we said, and we put it very clearly, we will make a loss in the first quarter, but you will see progress in the first quarter numbers. No in, question. In, in terms of what outflows in certain in regions? In terms of business momentum? Where specifically? Example, business momentum? In the market business, for example, which was, as, as we all discussed, for, the, for, for reasons, clearly understandable reasons, week in the Q4 looks better. Wealth management, we are making progress. Certainly not that there where we should be, but we are making progress. Are, are, are you comfortable with the banking system as a whole? I mean, we've, we've you know, lived through a pretty incredible couple of days. And if you look at the markets, they're all over the place. 
No, I think so. I mean, this is a somewhat an isolated problem if you want to. And as I said, you know, if you are GCIPID or if you look at large banks, I think we will manage through it. Uh, talk to me a little bit about Credit Suisse First Boston. So first of all, what's the timeline for the IPO? The timeline for seen is unchanged, as we discussed last time. So we have a very clear plan to put it into market, create a liquidity event, most likely an IPO. We are working against our internal plans forcefully, and I would expect such an event in like 2025, as I said earlier. Okay. Any news? I mean, today you had news about the you know 20% that would go to Credit Suisse First Boston partners. What happens to the rest? The rest is owned by us and, and, and obviously also portioned by Michael, uh, as, as, we, yeah. as we announced it in like February. And the rest is owned by us. So this is, this is our, our part of the bank, remains our part of the bank. We are going into liquidity and again, most likely IPO. We will be probably majority shareholder. And then we make decision, you know, how our holding develops over the next yeah. following years. So you're still looking for an anchor investor? Yeah, for Credit Suisse First Boston, are, are you closer to finding one? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, we are close to, but uh, I'm not sure if it's anchor investor. We have a lot of interest uh, from no. third parties to be invested into that, which tells you something about the strategy, I would say. No. And we are evaluating that. M Middle Eastern investors? Different kind of investors, different parts of the world. But, but large chunk Not investors. Decision, and I will inform you first. As you oh, okay, how far away are we from that? We are pretty close, I would say. A couple of weeks? Would it, will it come before the first quarter? I will tell the market if we are there. What do you find most difficult about your job? Is, is to make it understandable, I would say, you know, that we are absolutely doing the right things, that we need some time to get through. And, and this is what all my colleagues and I try to do, you know, to regain the trust of the bank over the next couple of months. But is it more important to regain the trust of shareholders or, do, or clients? It is. Look, clients is, I told you last time, clients is, I would say, one of the best experience even in this very difficult months last year. I mean, they are so supportive of us. They are listening to us. They are doing active things to support. They like to bank with Credit Suisse. It's a fantastic experience. But, you know, the convincing of this is the right thing to do, we are executing at pace, and the head of plan is with all different stakeholders, all different ones. But why are they taking money out then if, if, if your clients are happy? Because, and that's, that's what I also said, if you are in a situation like we were in October, you know, where you had malicious information out in the market at the beginning of October, we were not able to speak, legally not able no. to speak. And that's why I said, like two-thirds of the outflow stemming from October alone, 85% from October and November. And the moment we could reach out, right. we started that huge program, talked to our clients, more than 10,000 clients in wealth management since then, more than 50,000 individual meetings in Switzerland, and that has created momentum. Are, are you frustrated, though, that actually you haven't been able to get ahead of that quicker? No, I think we, we, we are really doing the utmost possible, and I'm proud, not frustrated, I'm proud of what my colleagues, my people at the front units have done since months. I'm really proud of. But the, the message today, I mean, if you look at your share price, you're proud, you think you're executing, you're on a three-year plan. If you look at the share price at a record low, does, it, does your stomach sink a little bit when you look at the As share said, price? No, nothing which I like, obviously. But look, I can control what I can control. I don't control the share price. I control the execution of the right strategy. And, and you think the share price will, will catch up if, if you it execute? Will. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank that was you. Ulrich Kerner there, the Credit Suisse Chief Executive Officer. And with that, I'm going to send it back to you. Hey, Francine, just absolutely fantastic.
nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Now we're going to take a different perspective here. Magnus Billing joining us. He's the chief executive officer of Sweden's Electa, and we're thrilled he could join us uh, this morning here with perspective on the American banks and with perspective on the pension responsibilities in his Sweden across Europe and, frankly, uh, worldwide. Magnus, the path is this. October of last year, a small matter of a busted sure thing in the United Kingdom a bailout by the Bank of England, literally in hours, what we've all observed over the last four days. And we look at Sweden as the bastion. What are the shadows within the Swedish pension system right now? Is it pricing commercial real estate? Is it different nuances of, of European banking? What, what are the shadows you confront this morning? Well, good, good morning. Uh, thank you for having me. I think, first of all, that the Swedish bank, uh, pension system is very robust. Uh, it's more robust than it's been in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, but having said that, obviously, end of the day, it's a lot about liquidity when the psychology kicks in into mm -hmm. the market space. And I think the, the issue that you brought up about the UK event that took place last year and also what we see now in the past uh, week or so is a lot of liquidity, psychology around the liquidity and the easiness one can move capital today with the digital uh, development that we've seen in the past number of years. Uh, but uh, looking at just a balance sheet of basically across all the pension funds in Sweden and the Nordic region, they are very robust today. Do you bring the money home? My experience on the geography of crisis is when in doubt, pull it home. Do Swedish pension plans, and would you guess European continental plans, do they just bring the assets home? I think the underlying fundamentals of the U.S. market is still very attractive for any investor. Uh, so I think in the mid to long term, U.S. Uh, will always be able to attract uh, investors to invest uh, into the market space. That goes also for the pension funds. And I think looking at the size of many of the pension funds in, in the Nordics and the European uh, space, uh, they need to uh, diversify into the U.S. market and other regions of 
around the globe. So I think uh, uh, I have at least a, a positive mid to long term view on the US market's capacity to deliver shareholder value to us. And Magnus, you have a problem this morning, as most people know. So let's talk about that problem now. How does a Swedish pension fund end up allocated to Signature Bank, First Republic and SVP? Yeah, I mean, we've been uh, we invested in those companies starting 2017 uh, up until 2019, and, and we've been growing that allocation over the years. So obviously, we thought that uh, the initial year was good for us in investing that. But uh, with what's happened last week, obviously, we think it's uh, it's a big failure for us as uh, as an investor, and we need to learn something from that and take actions based upon the lessons learned. So it's a failure. I just want to sort of put that in proportion to the total total portfolio that we're managing. We're talking about uh, 1% of our total capital that we manage. So uh, from a customer point of view, this does not have a material impact at all. It will not impact the pensions that we are uh, committing to our customers. I understand that, uh, but it does speak to weak internal controls the, and yeah. some odd decisions that we need to talk about, yeah. Magnus. The fact that you were allocated to those names, but some of the conservative Swedish lenders, you ended up selling those positions in 2022. So I guess the question that will be repeatedly asked of you is just what happened? What happened and why did you buy more of those names and sell more conservative names? Well, they, they, those are two separate issues. The, the divestment of the Swedish banks is a standalone assessment of the decision made, made at a different time. Talking about the US banks, uh, what we liked about them was the market position, uh, the position when it comes to transformation in the digital space and the US market, generally speaking, the depth of that and the, the, the size of it. Uh, we had discussion with the Silicon Valley Bank during the fall because we also saw as many others, you know, the, the withdrawal of deposits and the uh, uh, investments the company did in the long-term uh, government securities and what that led when it comes to duration and liquidity aspects. Uh, we thought that the action plan that the company had was uh, they were transparent about that and we thought it was well thought through. Uh, then last week the company acted uh, not in accordance with the action plan we had discussed and talked with them about and that yeah. we had been presented to. And that surprised us and I think that was uh, a big mistake from the company's side. Well clearly Magnus, it didn't just surprise you, it surprised many people including the regulator here in the United States so a lot of people have questions they'll need to answer as well. I want to understand how you responded to that in the last couple of days. So you've identified some banks that you hold that haven't managed their interest rate risk properly. Are you worried that you also hold some European banking names that maybe are in the same position, perhaps even worse, given what's happened with the bond market there over the last couple of years? We see in the European market as well uh, withdrawal of deposits uh, and it's increasing. So we, we're monitoring that very closely and we're monitoring basically the, the whole exposure we have to the banking sector, which is in total 2% of the total portfolio. So I think uh, we need the last few days has been, you know, ex escalating a little bit in the European market, but we were not monitoring that. I think the loss to uh, equity ratio is completely different or very different in the European space compared to some of the banks in the US market that you mentioned earlier. Magnus, can we just focus on Europe just a little bit more? Do you hold Credit Suisse? No, we don't. Have you sold any names in the last 24 hours, the last 48 hours? Have you de-risked around the European banks at all in any way, shape or form? 
we have not. We have we hold shares in two Nordic banks, SCB and uh, Nordea. You also, though, have taken on these credit risk transfers over the past few years, or basically you take on the risk associated with particularly European bank books tied to commercial loans, distressed debt. How confident are you that those are going to be solid investments? I think the banking sector in Europe is stronger than uh, uh, what they were in uh, prior to the global financial crisis. Uh, so I think we're in a better starting position. Uh, obviously, a lot of things are happening right now, and it, it's clearly a transition phase that the market is going through with the enormous uh, increase in the interest rate that we've seen in the past 12 months and the speed of that. Uh, and uh, we haven't transitioned through that yet. Uh, but I think the banks, the Nordic banks that, that we hold shares in, are in a solid position uh, as of today. Given the bet that you made on some of the U.S. banks, I'm wondering how you're handling the fallout, whether you're getting out of the positions, whether you're doubling down, whether you're buying more. What's been sort of the positioning over the past couple of days? Well, when you talk about the Silicon Valley Bank and the Signature Bank uh, being in a receivership, I think it's more a legal issue for us to, to ensure that we uh, protect our legal rights there. I don't expect any value to come out of that as of today. When it comes to uh, First Republic, uh, obviously, the, the, it's very volatile and, and it's day-to-day, -day basically. Yesterday, it fell a lot. Today, it's up again. We, uh, we, will, we haven't taken any decision yet, but we are ready to take decisions as we see appropriate for us at any stage. But we haven't taken any major actions today with regard to that bank. Magnus, every crisis unfolds with a certain character. We make note of Sweden's wonderful work many, many decades ago in inventing a whole bit of central bank theory with how Stockholm invent, uh, handled a crisis. The theme right now seems to be the shadows or the mysteries of private equity and venture capital. In America, conservative money is addicted to the potential return of that group. Are you exposed to private equity and venture capital, long-term locked-in holdings, and do you worry that there could be some real issues there with liquidity? In our equity portfolio, our investment model is predominantly focused on uh, more mature companies, and we invest directly in those. So uh, we're looking for strong cash flow rather mm -hmm. than potential growth and, and future uh, positive cash flow. With that said, that means that we don't, we right. basically don't have any private equity exposure and VC exposure in our portfolio. You've been doing this for a few years. Do you assume in crisis, with the way yields are gyrating, the way all central banks have become more restrictive in the last last four or five days, do you suggest that not the actuarial assumption, but just the expected return of pension portfolios will come down? Yes, I, I do think that the next 10 years will be more difficult to generate return. Uh, and I think uh, we will see changes in the investment models uh, in the pension fund industry in order to secure right. adequate return for, for the beneficiaries. Sir, my great theme here is we've had interest rate come in as we've come back and normalized yield, certainly normalized yield uh, within the European sphere as well. Is it troubled non-profitable companies, what we call in America zombies, that they will go away, whether they're banks or anything else as well? Do you suggest that we will see combinations and transactions to clear out companies that have had essentially a free lunch for 16 years? 
Yeah, I do think some companies are uh, have benefited uh, too much of, uh, of the central bank's put and, and the fact that we've been living in a world for many years where cost of capital has been basically zero. Uh, and I don't think that that is sustainable in the long term. And I would su su suspect that some businesses out there will struggle to adjust to more normalized interest rate level long term. Magnus, as you and I are talking, as we're all speaking, the first deputy governor of the Swedish Central Bank is addressing Parliament at the moment, suggesting that we need more tightening despite volatility. There are people who believe that things are breaking now and these central banks need to back away. Can we finish on that? What's your take on that? Sorry, I didn't hear the question properly, so could you... I can repeat it, sir, by all means. So the first deputy governor of the Riksbank is speaking to Parliament right now suggesting that we need more tightening despite the volatility. Magnus, as you know, the conversation in the last 24 hours is that people, some people believe things are breaking and central banks should back away. What's your take on that, sir? I do think that we in the market space today uh, actually see a de facto tightening. Uh, and I think that should be catered in, into the policy decisions to be made going forward. Uh, and I, it's very difficult assessments to make, obviously. But I'm a little bit concerned that we're breaking the, breaking the markets if we're too aggressive. Uh, obviously, we need to bring down the inflation because that is uh, the long-term uh, number one foe for, for all the market participants. But it's a balancing act here. And I, I think again that the current de facto marketing tightening that's happening should be catering to that consideration. Magnus, it's a difficult time for everyone, particularly for you this morning, and we appreciate the opportunity to speak with you at that difficult time. Thanks for being with us. Magnus Billing there of Elector, a Swedish pension fund with exposure to all the wrong names. This is a joy. His name is Ethan Harris. He's an author. He's also head of global research at Bank of America Securities and stopped economics with a prescient book, Ben Bernanke's Fed, a few years ago. In that book, you talked about a theme I just talked to Vincent Reinhardt about, which was the shadow of Alan Greenspan. Are we in this mess, Dr. Harris, because we became unmeasured? Well, I, I think that... Uh I don't think Alan Greenspan's legacy is really that strong right now. I think we got into this mess because, like a lot of central banks and a lot of economists, the Fed started to believe that inflation was largely dead and you didn't have to worry about a sloped Phillips curve, to put a technical term on it. And so they adopted a very right. passive monetary policy. Now we're seeing a massive catch-up by the Fed. And, of course, financial accidents happen when you're hiking rates mm -hmm. very fast. And so some of this is a legacy of, of the Fed and other central banks starting too slowly to deal with inflation. The legacy and reality that I've seen within Brian Moynihan in his modern Bank of America is he's viscerally granular. Brian, more than any other CEO I know, has a granular feel. With all that research on your banking side, do you see a financial integrity to our banking system beneath the mass mm -hmm. of Bank of America. Well, I, I don't want to comment on Bank of America specifically. No, I mean on the other banks yeah, and no, the other I think system that, that Moynihan's glued to. And I team. think one of the questions for, for uh, uh, investors these days is how healthy is the banking system. And I think as your previous guest said, the banking system overall is in excellent health. It's heavily regulated, heavily capitalized. Um, you're always going to have, during periods of stress, some events. And I would think of this as 
you know, a stress event uh, in the context of otherwise not just strong financial uh, banking system, but strong financial system in general. So when you look at the balance of risks right now, and this is something that I've been giving a lot of thought to, if the financial system is strong, you have these supports, you get a bad sense of a rebound, it doesn't really tighten financial conditions all that much from where we were. And in fact, given the lower expectations for Fed rate hikes, you have easier financial conditions yes. than you did uh, just a bit ago. At what point does that become a huge risk for for inflation that does not come down. Well, I think we need to recognize that we're in the middle of a of a stress event, and so it's very hard to predict where things are going. Uh, the markets will always price out the central bank during a crisis like this. But the real question is: Does the policy uh, efforts, does the attempt to ring fence the problem, does it work? If it works, the Fed then goes back to their regularly scheduled program, and they have to deal with inflation. If it doesn't work, then monetary policy gets drawn into the process of supporting uh, the financial system. Our view is that ultimately the ring fencing works and the Fed goes back to hiking interest rates. So I think the um, our view would be that the, the markets understandably are in a very, uh, very um, risk-off mode, but ultimately the Fed's going to end up having to fight inflation. And this is the reason why you're in the camp of another 25 basis point rate hike next week. But I do wonder longer term whether the signs of stress have kind of gut checked your sense of how much yeah. these long and variable lags have come to the fore and put a higher uh, or rather a lower cap on how high rates can go. Well, I think that unquestionably uh, this, this uh, stress in the system now tightens financial conditions and is a warning about the lagged effects of monetary policy. It's actually been surprising how little impact the Fed's had up to now. Uh, they hiked at a very mm -hmm. fast pace. Now we're seeing some effects and, and perhaps an extreme effect. Um, and so it does have to make you a little more cautious about well, how far the Fed needs to go. Quickly, no I've question got to go about to Mike, it. but let's get out in front of Michael Gapin in the next hour with John Farrell. He's a good economist. I mean, he is. I think so. Good. But let's get let's get the Harris Gapin view here. Did they hike too rapidly? Were you guys sitting over the last number of weeks going that the rate of change, the Newtonian calculus of all this dance, <laughs> is just a little bit off? No, I don't think so. You I weren't think, sitting there. Okay. I think that the. The original error was waiting too long to hike. Um, the gradualism of Greenspan, you know, the idea of hike early so you can hike slowly, wasn't uh, carried out. And it wasn't well, that's just what the, I said, the shadow of Greenspan here. Is, the shadow is, is didn't the, do it. that they didn't do it, Greenspan. Okay. Said, what we've yeah. got to do is go to Michael McKee, who's diving into 47 pages of inflation data. Goods, you said, was 1%. Can you yep. be joyous about a service disinflation? <laughs> no, unfortunately, services go up a little bit, 7.26%. Uh, but a lot of that, as we mentioned, is housing. Owner's equivalent rent up 7 tenths, same as it was last month. Rent of primary residence up 8 tenths. That's a tenth more than it was in the month of January. But also we got a big boost in the uh, lodging uh, category for shelter. It's up 2.3%. That's more than double what it was Elisa, in are we uh, the month no, of uh, January. <laughs> Airfares were up, but here's an interesting thing, and I'd be interested to see if, if – uh, Ethan would go so far as to extrapolate the way I'm trying to here. But if you're looking at where you might be seeing wage increases, we've talked about leisure and hospitality a lot. Uh, food away from home, up six-tenths for the second month in a row. And uh, full-service meals, up six-tenths. Uh, that's a, a tenth higher than it was. So it, 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 prices are going up at restaurants. Uh 
alcoholic beverage prices went down. I'm not sure if that's uh, not went down, but the, but uh, but tailed off in inflation. I'm not sure as Tom. Well- help with that. But, but Mike, uh, to that point, and Ethan, I'd love you to weigh in on this because we have seen people willing to spend and they're willing to spend on services and that isn't diminishing. Does stress in the financial system really change that if people can get their deposits and everyone just goes on their way? Well, if you can get past the panic moment here in the markets, which it is, um, you're back to a economy that's solid. It hasn't uh, threatened a recession yet. Um, as Mike pointed out, um, there's a lot of inflation in areas where labor costs are important. Uh, you can't fix your inflation problem just by getting an improvement in supply chains. You need to get uh, the service side under control. You need a normal labor market, and we don't have a normal labor market. Just quickly, I'd love your sense. Vincent Reinhart was on, and he said yeah. that if this Federal Reserve comes out and doesn't hike rates because of potential financial system stress, it is basically saying that what they did on Sunday was not effective, that that program Mm -hmm. was not sufficient to stave off any distress. Do you agree? I mean, do you think that if they do not raise 25 basis points, that will be a policy error given the data we've seen? I would never contradict Vince. He and I were grad students together. Um, Anyways, um, no, I think that the, um, um, I, I think that it depends on how stressed the markets are. If the markets are in serious distress, pausing is okay. If they're improving mm-hmm. a lot and the ring fencing is working, then you can start to wonder whether the Fed has confidence yeah. in its ring fencing. So I think that's yeah. a legitimate concern. You and Vincent Reinhardt were the laureate Ned Phelps. Yeah. His later career is dynamism. Do we risk losing our dynamism because of this crisis and particularly the Silicon Valley crisis? Well, I think that the there's been a the, the COVID crisis itself has taken some of the mojo out of the economy. I think that the tech sector uh, to some degree is overexpanded. I think this is a temporary thing for tech. Tech is okay. still going to be a driver of growth going forward. Don't be a stranger. All right. Bring, bring Mr. Moynihan with you next time. Dr. <laughs> Harris is with the Bank of uh, America. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We are thrilled to have the former banker of Little Rock with us right now. He is a name that will become very familiar to Americans here in the study of this financial blowup. He is French Hill, 
Republican from Arkansas. Frencho, when you were at Vanderbilt, if you went down 40 and north on 265, you ended up where this debate began at the Hermitage at Andrew Jackson's spectacular home east of Nashville. And that's where this debate started, the raging debate over the Second Bank of the United States. The Republicans are Jacksonian. They're scared stiff of the big money of New York, et cetera, et cetera. And the Democrats of the urban milieu push against that. How is this battle going to play out? Are we still in fear of the Second Bank of the United States? Well, Tom, I love the history lesson, and the Hermitage is a beautiful spot. Andrew Jackson was a super controversial uh, president. But today we're faced with a situation where I think after 10 years of easy money and amazing amounts of fiscal stimulus, I think some management teams have forgotten their prudential obligations to their depositors and their shareholders. So we have a real laxity in risk management in some of our financial right. institutions. And perhaps we've got laxity in the supervision of those institutions uh, as well, particularly in the case of Silicon Valley. Do we need to treat the banks such as Delphi that you ran in Arkansas? Do we need to treat smaller banks like the bigger banks out of Dodd-Frank? Do we need a one regulatory system? Is that the lesson learned? Well, I think some of the costs of Dodd-Frank uh, on small banks made them less competitive, harder to earn a, a return on invested capital there. And that's why Democrats and Republicans came together, uh, as you noted earlier, and Barney Frank uh, supported it to make modifications in Dodd-Frank's uh, regulatory burden on small financial institutions. I don't think that in any way, shape, or form reduced the obligations of the bankers for their risk management uh, legal requirements or for the supervisors to do their routine job on a quarterly basis to make sure the system is safe and sound. Congressman, you keep mentioning uh, the supervision, and I'm wondering how much you fault Jerome Powell's Federal Reserve for the lack of supervision that you're talking about. Well, the Silicon Valley Bank uh, clearly had risk management problems in their, in their strategy about uh, short-term deposits that were uninsured, invested in long-term treasury and mortgage securities. And the California bank regulators, the state bank regulators, were the principal regulator backed up by the San Francisco Bank of, uh, uh, of the Fed. And so they do have a supervisory obligation. This bank grew very, very fast over the last two years. And that is usually a huge red flag to supervisors. And perhaps they could have uh, intervened and helped the management team steer in a much more safe and sound direction. Do you think that things have stabilized enough that you have confidence, given the inter intelligence that you've received, that the stability in the financial system is sound and that we're unlikely to see something else like this in the near future? Well, you never know what's going to happen in the future, but we do have a safe and sound bank banking system with good capital and good earnings and uh, generally good liquidity planning across the nation. I think that's clear over the past decade. But I think with uh, low interest rates at zero and then a sharp increase in short rates, some management teams are, were uh, not prepared for handling that in the right way. And so we may have bumps in the road as a result of that. And you've certainly seen that in the case of Silicon Valley uh, last week. Congressman, you've come on the show before and talked about how inflation is a tax on the poorest <coughs> members of our society, about how when inflation gets this high, it becomes punitive for so many families. How important is it 
from your vantage point to see the ongoing rate hikes or some sort of continuation in monetary policy, regardless of some of the concerns that we've seen in the financial system? Or do you think that this is the clarion call that perhaps what we've seen is enough? Lisa, it's a tough uh, it's a tough question. As I've said on your show before, that's the anguish of central banking to try to balance these factors. But look, uh, the, the Fed has a central obligation to all of us and our families of price stability. So they've got to have that as their principal mission, but they'll look at uh, financial fragility as well. Uh, but I think the Fed should stay on track uh, using their best judgment and looking at the data and make sure that they can beat this inflation and get it back down to closer to their uh, target of 2%. If we get to some new insurance regime, the belief here, Congressman, is the banks are going to pay for it, not the taxpayer. I get that idea. But is Arvest Bank of Bentonville, Arkansas, are they going to have to pick up the tab for the irresponsible behavior of West Coast technocrats? Yeah, Tom, this is a great question. And, you know, back in 2008 and 2009, we moved to risk-based premiums based on the bank's uh, CAMEL rating, their risk rating by the regulators. That was a step to making sure that people who run a, a, a poorer shop pay a higher deposit insurance premium. Now the question is, should we have some sort of uh, premium on top of this risk-based premium that would cover these sorts of uh, situations where a bank is determined to be, like they did this weekend, systemically important, and yet we're insuring deposits for which no premium was paid. I think this is an important area for policy to consider. We looked at it back in 08 to 10. I think we need to look right. at it again in the face of this new banking system. And Twitter runs, which is what uh, was precipitating right. this collapse last week. Let's meet in the rotunda. What is the common ground, Congressman Hill, of you and Senator Warren? Well, I think both Senator Warren and I want a safe and sound banking system. We want to make sure, for example, in the digital asset space, that the rules of the road are clear and that we don't have this speculation that we've seen in that market and that criminals are prosecuted and fraudsters are prosecuted. But I would say to Senator Warren, look, we have a robust regulatory system with plenty of rules on banks of all sizes. What we need to see is vigorous supervision of those banks by their primary regulators at all stages of the economic cycle. Does that mean, Congressman, walking back some of the deregulation we saw go through in 2018? You know, Jonathan, I don't think so, because it was a very bipartisan, very modest tiering of the regulatory structure that came out of Dodd-Frank. I don't think you can lay uh, that. Uh, you can. I don't think you can lay the, the collapse of the, of the banks last week at the foot of 2155. I don't <clears throat> I just don't think that's uh, relevant. I think what is relevant is risky management practices with or without uh, Dodd-Frank uh, and lack of supervision by the primary regulator. The reason I ask that is because the regulator used the systemic risk exception to make depositors whole. And Congressman, what we've acknowledged over the weekend is that basically all banks in America carry some degree of systemic risk. So should they all be regulated in the same fashion regardless of size? Well, I think tiering is important, but that gets back to Tom's good question about deposit insurance. Should we have a premium on top of the base, uh, risk-based premium that somehow reflects that systemic risk? Uh, and that would be something that somebody would have to think through analytically about how one would assess that in a fair uh, and balanced way. But that speaks to this question because you're right, the regulators this weekend determined that Silicon Valley's reach 
went well beyond uh, its branches in California and New York as it related to the economy. And Congressman, always great to get your perspective. The banking system, the politics down in D.C., Congressman French Hill. How odd. A politician with actual day-to-day skill. David George is senior research analyst at Baird, very importantly, with decades of experience. David, what are you writing this morning? Let me just cut to the chase. What matters right now for David George? Um, we wrote this morning, uh, Tom, good morning. Thanks for, for having me. We, we believe that this is an asymmetrically positive risk-reward for regional bank stocks. In fact, probably the most constructive that we've been since covid maybe even more constructive than that. This is uh, one of the best setups that we have seen in the last 20, I've done this 23 years, and this is an unbelievably good risk-reward setup uh, for the stock. What is the skill set to determine that a given bank is not seeing outflows and that that given bank has trust and confidence? Um, Well, you know, part of it is, obviously, it's, it's difficult to predict Customer behavior, um, but I think so- something that has gone un- undiscussed in the financial media is, and I don't cover Silicon Valley, but I think it's important to note that they have 220 billion in deposits. Do you know how many branches they had? 18. Do you know how many branches U.S. Bank has? 5,000. The average deposits per branch at most U.S. banks is about 15 to 50 million, not 2 billion per office. So. The granularity of most U.S. regional banks' funding is, is just infinitely different than the kind of banks that have been reported um, that have failed. So um, obviously we are in a period where investors have long memories and there's panic, but that is where you get these asymmetric opportunities, and that's where we are, in my opinion. That said, David, there's a very different scenario that is uniform pretty much across all the banking sector as well as uh, beyond, which is the immediacy of being able to withdraw in real time online uh, at any time, the ability for there to be a bank run that happens so quickly that even regulators are caught completely off guard. How does that change your risk assessment of smaller banks, especially at a time where cash is paying something and a lot of people are concerned that these banks are not going to be able to deliver? Well, first of all, I am not concerned. Maybe that doesn't matter. But the to your second point, Lisa, the the movement of funds into treasuries and higher yielding alternatives that, that that's been going on for over a year. So that is not a new phenomenon. Now, how people feel about that, given where the stocks have been trading, is new. But fundamentally, that has been happening for for several months and several quarters. In terms of the movement of deposits and Things like social media and media like yourselves talking about bank runs, that's really not that helpful, to be honest, um, to depositors. Because most customers of regional banks do not have millions of dollars. They've got maybe $5,000 in a checking account. Maybe a small business has got 100000 They are not focused on this. They are focused on running their businesses. So I, I just think that the, the, the similarities between Silicon Valley and most other what I would call mainstream banks couldn't be more different. 
That said, there is this concern about the interest rate risk at a lot of banks. And I am wondering from your perspective, putting aside, you know, what the media's role is or what investors' role is or what the reputational risk is, what about the nuts and bolts, potential unrealized losses on the balance sheets of a number of regional <coughs> banks that haven't necessarily hedged against a dramatic in, uh, rise in interest rates and among all of their assets they used to back those customer deposits? Um, well, a couple things. So banks, as part of the Dodd-Frank legislation, have to own securities as part of what's called the LCR, liquidity coverage ratios. And keep in mind, Silicon Valley and banks under $250 billion in assets are no longer subject to that legislation. All of the big banks that we talk about are all subject to that, by the way. That's another thing that has gone unreported and unnoticed and undiscussed. Um, in terms of the interest rate risk, yes, there are banks that are sitting on securities these are money good securities, by the way. These are treasuries and MBS that pay as agreed. These are not subprime loans. These are not CDOs. These are money good securities. And by the way, deposits have value as well. They are not marked to market either. So despite that, you, you have banks that are generating you know, JP Morgan, what did they make last quarter? $8 billion of earnings. B of A made $5 billion of earnings. This is just not a crisis. 2008 was a crisis. This is a very short-term crisis of confidence driven by one bank that was essentially a levered PE fund. So um, from my perspective, there are obviously unrealized losses. And by the way, with bonds rallying, those losses are now becoming gains, and that will change over time. Um, but, and my, most banks will hold these, these securities until maturity. Um, yeah. But I think, just, I think just to say that these banks aren't managing interest rate risk, I think is is not an intellectually honest statement from my perspective. Well, David, it's always fantastic to get your perspective. Repeatedly through this conversation, you do sound somewhat frustrated with the way this story has been covered over the last three <laughs> days. What would you like to see here more of going forward? What are the questions that you think have been missing? Um, I, I just think that, that the constant focus on <clears throat> is your money safe, it, it, it just... And I think the proliferation of social media is obviously something that I know you're not necessarily engaged in. But but I think it's just no, important to I think <laughs> I think it's important to to just distinguish between banks and their funding and their customer bases. And um, you know I, th th this particular situation is frustrating when you've got a not to get political, but when you've got a VC legend tells everyone that screams fire in a in a crowded theater, that's not helpful um, either. And that, that's a whole nother discussion. But I think, I think the main thing is just having some differentiation between banks. And, and by the way, there will be beneficiaries of this. All of the large banks, as you kind of referenced a little bit earlier before we started the show, um, they will benefit from this. So there will be your, your big 10 to 15 banks yeah. will be net beneficiaries, which, which is something that, again, I think not, has not been discussed. And, and those stocks have gotten smoked as well. It's something we talked about a lot over the last three days. A lot of money is going to go to the SIBs. There's going to be a premium attached to them just in terms of safety, perceived safety. David, this was great. Let's try and make this regular because I have no doubt there's going to be a story. Uh, for the next couple of weeks, maybe even the next couple of months. David George there of bed. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always 
on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.